Alright, well let's, let's pray. Lord, I pray now as we commune with You through Your Word that You would help us, that You, Lord, would um, show us here from the, the truths of Your Word what would be helpful to us and to our souls. Uh, I think of how much of what will be shared today goes back into Old Testament history perhaps, thinking about things so foreign to us and yet so key to understanding who Jesus is. And so I pray that Jesus would, would come through in my message today and we would um, love Him more and more as You show Your grace and goodness to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 5 this morning. The first ten verses of Hebrews 5. As we come to this chapter, we do face a bit of a difficulty. It's a difficulty that we always face when coming into the Scriptures because um, we live at a different times than uh, the people to whom the Bible is written. Sometimes it's a bigger difficulty than at other times, and today it's, uh, it's a little bit bigger as it deals with priestly things. See, one of our greatest challenges in Bible interpretation is the fact that they're written the Bible was, to different people in different times with different sights and smells. And we need to understand what it is that they knew and experienced and what the message meant to them before we can even interpret it and apply it to us. And we come squarely to that problem here in Hebrews chapter 5 because we're not Jews living in the first century. We don't live in their culture. We don't have their same heritage. And the sights and smells of America today are far different than the sights and smell of Israel after the days of Jesus. Think about it, we know little of temple life. We have never walked into the outer court, into the throngs of people coming to worship the Lord. We've never been stopped before the inner court, not being allowed to enter because we're not priests. We've never seen a priest dressed in his priestly garments. We've never heard a priest offer up his prayers to God. We've never experienced the drama of the Day of Atonement, when the high priest enters the holy place just one time a year to atone for our sins. We've never tasted of what it is like to anticipate, will He come out or not? We know little of the many sacrifices offered to God. We've never approached a vendor, shelled over a few shekels in response to a, given an animal that would soon be slaughtered for our sins in our sight. We've never heard the sounds of the animals being offered as sacrifice. We've never smelled their, their flesh. We've never seen the life go out of a lamb with just have its throat slit. We haven't seen the blood-stained garments of the priest. We haven't stepped into the puddles, left, the puddles of blood left by the animals. We know little of the reality of the Jewish feasts in Jerusalem. Never walked through the, the streets on the crowded feast day. We've never tasted the traditional foods nor sang the traditional songs. That's not to say we haven't read much about priests and temples because we have read much. It's not to say we haven't thought much about them because we have thought a lot about these things, but we haven't experienced them like they did. They saw the temple, they saw the priest, they saw the sacrifice, they smelled the flesh, they heard the crowds, they enjoyed the feasts. In fact, some of them to whom the, the book of Hebrews is written had an inside track on this. It says in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, that a great many priests were com becoming obedient to the faith 
Here, here you had priests who were used to slaughtering all these animals and offering up the, the offering to the Lord as a fragrant aroma to His nostrils and, and they'd come to faith in Christ and had begun to abandon all those former things. And we know so little compared to what they knew. We experienced nothing in comparison with them. So this morning, all we can do is begin to understand as we look here into Hebrews. But the good news is this. All we need to understand is given for us here in the book of Hebrews. We don't need to know more than what is written, and I think we can get a, a taste of what was taking place. Our text in Hebrews 5 addresses the qualifications of a high priest to perform all of these duties. And in doing so, in the book of Hebrews, he always says, this is what the high priest is, but Jesus is better than the high priest. The first half of this text, verses 1-4, through four, speaks about the high priest. And then the second half, verses 5-10, through 10, speaks about Jesus. In the first half, we have two qualifications put forth for the high priest. In the last half, the writer will take these qualifications and demonstrate that Jesus did not only fulfilled them to be a high priest, but He has exceeded them on top of that. It's appropriate. My message this morning is entitled, Better Than the High Priests, because that's what our text demonstrates Now, up to this point, we've seen high priests three times in the book of Hebrews. The first is in chapter 2, verse 7, which the writer says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that Jesus might become a faithful and merciful high priest in things pertaining to God. The second is in chapter 3, verse 1. The writer says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And the third time is in... Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So every time we would talk about a high priest, a high priest, a high priest. Now, to the, the Jews who heard this, they would have understood. But to us, it's a little bit more difficult because we don't have high priests. But each of the times before then, he's just talking about Jesus being a high priest. But now here in chapter 5, we delve into what a high priest actually is. First of all, first qualification is he's taken from men. Verses 1 through 3. Let me just read it there. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. Now these words here paint the picture of what a priest should be. What a priest must be. A priest cannot be an angel. A priest can't be a special spiritual being. Priests must be men because they are men's representative before God. Right? They're taken from among men. And appointed on behalf of men to represent men in things pertaining to God. And as representatives, a priest must be like those he represents. And we know about this in our government. How our government works by popular vote. We elect people to represent us in our government. And for them to represent us, they must be like us. They need to be residents in our area. It's true on the state level and on the national level. Most of us here in Illinois, some of you live in Wisconsin. Maybe not. Maybe everyone here is in Illinois. We, we live in the 16th Congressional District. Our national representative is Don Manzullo. He represents the cause of Northern America in Washington, D.C. So likewise, in the state level, there's several of us. We live in different districts. Even we, Charles Jefferson or Ron Wade or Dave Winters all live here in the Northern Illinois area. 
and they represent our cause in Springfield. In the same way, that's what a high priest does. The role of the high priest is to represent people before God. And to represent them, he must be like them. That's why he's taken from among men. Now, his work in representing people before the Lord consists of offerings, both gifts and sacrifice. I don't think there's a big distinguish between, difference between what a gift is and what a sacrifice is. I think it just speaks about what, what the priest offers before the Lord, gifts and sacrifices. And this is the main role of a priest, to offer up sacrifices. And the number of these sacrifices are varied. There are many. There are burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. People would come, confess their sins before the Lord, confess their sins, bring a sacrifice to the priest. He'd offer it up on their behalf. Depending upon what kind of sin uh, took place, depending upon the financial ability of those committing the sin, the priest would then offer up the bull or the goat or the lamb or the turtle doves or the pigeons up before the Lord to atone for the sin. The number of sacrifices offered by the priests were many, not only just people bringing them, but also throughout the year, calendar year, there are many different types of sacrifices as well. Every morning, they offered a lamb. Every evening, they offered a lamb. Every Sabbath day, they offered two male lambs. On the first day of each month, they offered a sacrifice. Two bulls, one ram, one male lamb, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour. On the fifteenth day of the first month, they offered more sacrifices. The beginning of the Feast of Weeks, they offered up more sacrifices. In the seventh month, they offered up sacrifices. Particularly, the seventh month, tenth day, is the Day of Atonement. But surrounding the whole seventh month, they have many, many sacrifices they offered. In the tenth day, there were sacrifices. Fifteenth day, there were sacrifices. Even another eight days after the fifteenth day, there were sacrifices and sacrifices. That was the life of a priest. It's the life of a high priest to offer up sacrifices for sins. In verse 2, we see one of the reasons why he was taken among men. It's because he can sympathize with us. Look at verse 2. A high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. As he offered up these sacrifices, he wasn't to be cold and mechanical about it. Okay, here's your sacrifice, so I'll offer it up. Here's your sacrifice, okay, I'll offer that up. No, his, his heart was to be in the work. He... He was to have a heart for those who sinned. I love it says in verse 2, he can deal gently. Your version might say that he can have compassion on people. The word is metriopathane. Metrio meaning halfway and pathane meaning passions. The, the high priest was the one really to, to have passions in the middle. Passions from God, but passions from men. Walking the tightrope between being angry at sin like God is or being apathetic towards the sin like we often are. And, and, and he, can, he can deal gently. He can be right in the middle with a healthy, compassionate concern for the guilty party and yet also keeping in, in mind <clears throat> God's hatred of sin. And I just tell you, that type of quality must be true of any spiritual leader in the body of Christ. On the one hand, we need to be able to exhort people to holiness, knowing the wrath of God that comes upon those who reject the Lord. And yet, on the other hand, spiritual leaders need to be able to sympathize with those in the congregation who are trapped in their sin, ignorant and misguided. That's why Paul said an overseer must be gentle. Able to exhort, able to sympathize. At the time of Jesus, the high priests weren't this way at all. Remember when Jesus was being tried before the high priest Caiaphas? 
He was anything but gentle. He was anything but a compassionate man. He had an agenda to destroy Jesus regardless of what was true. He believed that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. In other words, in order to keep the peace, Caiaphas said that he was happy to find a scapegoat regardless of the cost. He wasn't compassionate and gracious toward Jesus as he should have been. Nor was the high priest that Paul encountered. When he began his testimony by asserting a clear conscience before God, the high priest Ananias commanded those beside him to strike him in the mouth. It showed he really wasn't intent upon listening to Paul and dealing gently with him. Rather, he had an agenda he was going to see that it happened. But, by the way, that's the key to this text. Hebrews 5 isn't so much describing the high priest as they were in the days of Christ, but rather Hebrews 5 describes the ideal high priest, the, the priest that the law calls them to be. And, and, and here's, here's the thing, is even as, as the, the law would call them to be gentle, Jesus is even more. He is more compassionate for us than the high priest ever did. The high priest must be taken from among men, appointed on behalf of men, able to deal gently with wayward sinners, aware of his own weakness, is what it says in the end of verse 2. He can deal gently because he's also beset with weakness. The high priest was supposed to be a humble man, knowing his own weaknesses. And verse 3 then speaks about the implication of his weaknesses. Because of it, because of his weakness, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. I believe verse 3 has an eye towards the Day of Atonement. It's recorded in Leviticus 16. You might even write that in your Bibles right there. Leviticus chapter 16 speaks about the Day of Atonement. See, throughout the year, the priests were offering up many sacrifices for sin for sinners who'd come and confess their sins before the Lord. But all these took place in the outer tabernacle. But there was a time, seventh month, tenth day, which was a high holy day for the people of Israel. That's when the high priest went into the holy place to offer up sacrifices. On that day, God specifically described what would take place. He said, I want the priest to wash himself with water. And then I want him to put on himself the, the robes the priestly garments. And then, as he comes for the people, he's take a bull, a big cow, and slaughter it before all the people. He himself was to take the knife and to slit its throat while it's struggling. The, 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 the ring in its nose, trying to struggle to get free. And he's going to take the life of that bull right in front of all the people. And according to Jewish literature, he lay his hands upon the head of the bull and would say this, Oh God, I have committed iniquity and transgressed and sinned before Thee, I and my house and the children of Aaron, Your holy people. O God, forgive, I pray, the iniquities and transgressions and sins which I have committed and transgressed and sinned before You, I and my house. So confessing the sin upon the bull, sees it dead there, and then he's supposed to take a bowl, take the blood from the bull, along with a fire pan of coals and some incense. He's supposed to go into the holy place. And he's supposed to put the incense there on the fire pan to create this smoke which covers over the holy seat. And he's supposed to take the blood from the, from the pan and put it in his finger and dip it seven times onto the altar. And then he's to come out. Out of the veil, back to the people. And that was for his sins. And then he... When he came out, he would do the same thing with a goat in front of all the people, taking the, the goat, and he'd take the blood of the goat, 
he'd go into the holy place again. Hopefully the incense is, is still there and he would, he would sprinkle seven times upon the altar the blood of the goat. And then he'd come out and the altar would never be visited again for another year. Very symbolic of the sacredness of our sins and what our sins require before the Lord. First time was for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. And the priest did this because he's weak. The high priest wasn't a superman. Yes, he played a special role in the life of the nation. He played a super special role. He was the, the top spiritual leader. And think about when Jesus was uh, before the high priest. I mean, he, he became the top political leader as well. So he was the Pope and the President all combined into one person. Such was the high priest. But he wasn't a superman. He was weak. He was a regular man taken from among men. As they say, the best of men are men at best. Well, there's the first qualification. He must be taken from men. The second qualification is he must be appointed by God. Look at verses 4 through 6. Particularly the human priest is verse 4. And no one takes this honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. The point here is simply this. Nobody says, I want to be a high priest when I grow up. You know, you ask children all the time, what do you want to be when I grow up? I want to be, when I was little, you kids know what I wanted to be when I was growing up? When I was about, let's say, I remember fourth grade, you know, we did those bubble things. I wanted to be a professional major league baseball player is what I wanted to be. But nobody can fill in and say, I want to be a high priest because a high priest isn't something you ascend to. It is something which is appointed to you by God. Case in point is Aaron. It wasn't Aaron's idea to become a high priest. The initiative was all of God. You can read about in Exodus chapter 28, verse 1. God told Moses, take Aaron and make him a priest. Down through history of Israel, there's always been those who sought out the priesthood for themselves. Korah, his gathering of 200 people, rose against Moses and said, Why do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? We can speak to the Lord too, is what he said. And the ground swallowed them up. When Saul took it upon himself to offer the sacrifice, he said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offering, because Samuel is delayed. And upon offering the sacrifice, then Samuel came and said, Announce to him, Your kingdom shall not endure. And when Uzziah the king became strong, he became proud and acted corruptly. And against the resistance of the priests, he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And while he was there, standing before the priests in the temple, his forehead broke out with leprosy when his censer was still in his hand. See, God does not take it lightly when people assert themselves with the priesthood. You don't assert yourself to be a high priest. Rather, you're appointed by God. Let's turn the corner now. We've seen the qualifications of the human high priest. And now let's look at Jesus. And, and as we come to these verses, I feel like I'm a broken record. I mean, how many times have I said, well, here's this, but Jesus is better. Here's this, Jesus is better. I mean, the, this is because this is what the writer of the Hebrews says. He says, you give me angels, I'll show you how Jesus is better. You give me Moses, I'll show you that Jesus is better. You give me Joshua, I'll show you that Jesus is better. And now we take the high priest. You take the high priest, the most high and lofty, president, pope combined, and I will show you how Jesus is better than the high priest. Jesus also was taken from among men and appointed by God. In each of these instances, Jesus tops the high priest. His humanity is a perfect humanity. His appointment by God was to a greater priesthood by an oath by God Himself. 
The author in typical Hebrew style works backwards from forwards. So in other words, we see he's appointed by God first and then we'll see that he is taken from men. Now before we dig into verse 5, you need to realize this. Um, like I said, I, I, I want to comment here on the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament. See, when God was thinking about sending Jesus into the world, He didn't say to Himself, hmm, I need to send Jesus in the world. How are they going to understand my son? Um, hmm. Oh, oh, we've got these sacrifices. Yeah, Jesus will come and be a sacrifice. And there's this high priest. And yeah, I think they'll understand Jesus by the fact that he enters the holy place just once, once a year. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. Why didn't I think of it earlier? Right? They know of sacrifices and they know of priests. I'll, I'll send Jesus as a sacrifice. I'll tell them that, that Jesus is a priest. Yeah, yeah, it'll work perfectly. It didn't work like that. It worked the other way around. Rather, it worked like this. God thought about sending Jesus, His Son. He said, hmm, how this work? Hmm. I know, I know. I will institute this religious system which speaks of sacrifice. And, and I will make this so that when they, when they sin, they need to bring a sacrifice. And, and I know what I'll do. I will set up a high priest, the most high and lofty and holy one in the land. And, and he, will, he will offer up this sacrifice. And, and I will do this for years. So they have many, many object lessons. So that by the time Christ comes, they'll have category for priest. And they'll have category for sacrifice. And Jesus then will be the ultimate one to which all of this points. So you realize that for 1,400 years, God was teaching and teaching and teaching and preparing for Jesus, preparing for Jesus. And I'm sure that when the Day of Atonement came and they offered up, I said, boys, learn it well. Learn it well because there's going to be one coming who will ultimately enter the Holy of Holies who will be the perfect sacrifice for us. And so when Jesus came, the high priest had already been established by God for the purpose of teaching about Jesus. So as we read here in verses 5 through 10, it's not that Jesus merely happened to fulfill all the offices and qualifications of the high priest. That was intent and designed from the beginning. Let's see, he's appointed by God. Verse 5, So also Christ, just like Aaron, did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he also says in another passage, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Here we see two Old Testament quotes. Both of them are prefaced by the statement, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. <clears throat> First one here deals with the way that, that uh, Jesus was appointed a son. The second one... Was Deals the way he's appointed us a, a priest. Jesus didn't appoint himself in these circumstances. It was the Father appointing the Son in both these ways. Whereas Korah, Saul, and Uzziah exalted themselves to perform their own priestly role, Jesus was exalted by his heavenly Father. And it makes all the difference in the world. In fact, Jesus said in his ministry, John 8, verse 54, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing, is what Jesus said. A little later on, he says, it's my Father who glorifies me. And as God has glorified Jesus, it means everything. His glory far exceeds those of the high priests. Their appointment came in the line of other priests. Their appointment came in the line of other men. But Jesus appointed the high priest by a decree from God Himself. 
says in Hebrews 7, verse 28, that the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after law, appoints a son made perfect forever. And the word of the oath we're talking about is this word right here, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The appointment to the role of high priest by the law appoints weak men, but the divine appointment makes a son perfect forever. Here we see the son coming in verse 5. You are my son, today I have begotten you. It's a quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. It speaks about Jesus being the son of God. He merely isn't another priest in the line of Levi. Rather, he's the son of God, which presents another problem, by the way. How, how could Jesus be a high priest if he wasn't from the tri- tribe of Levi? Well, the Old Testament Scriptures are clear. It's because the priesthood of Jesus is a different priesthood. It's not a Levitical priesthood. Look at verse 6. Just as he says also in another passage, this comes from Psalm 110, verse 4, 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The priesthood of Jesus is a forever priesthood. It's on a different order. It's on the order of Melchizedek and not on the order of Levi. Hebrews 7.11 gives the explanation. It says, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to rise according to Melchizedek and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron? The answer is this. The Levitical priesthood was imperfect. That's why you need another order of priests. That's why the Old Testament prophesied of another priest coming according to the order of Melchizedek. And I'd love to talk about Melchizedek. But we can't now because he picks it up in chapter 7. And so we'll, we'll talk about it later in chapter 7 when we get there. But suffice it here to say this, the God's appointment of Jesus to the priesthood was better than that of Aaron, better than the other high priest, because it came with an oath from God Himself. Makes it better. His priesthood is better. It's a forever priesthood. Well, not only was Jesus appointed by God, Jesus also was taken from men, just like the high priest in verses 1 through 3. Now Jesus also taken from among men, verses 7 through 10, and He can sympathize with us. And His humanity is far greater than that of any of the high priests, because he suffered greatly, and his suffering brought perfect obedience, and his obedience brought us eternal salvation. Let's look at his suffering. Verse 7, In the days of his flesh, that's referring to the incarnation, when Jesus took on flesh, when he became human like us, every bit as much of a man as any high priest was ever appointed to his post was. Verse 7, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications, with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. These words take us back to Gethsemane, when Jesus was facing death, a dreadful death, a torturous death upon a cross. Though Jesus had separated himself a good deal from the disciples, they still heard what he prayed. And he prayed, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. I'm sure spoken through groans and cries and tears. Perhaps never was there a prayer that was offered with so much passion before. Luke tells us that Jesus sweat drops of blood as He prayed. And now imagine Jesus, our High Priest. He can sympathize with us because He's gone through trials. He can deal gently with us because He has been a man. He also knows how to pray. Look at it here. He is pleading for the impossible 
that there might be some way out of death. It was not possible for him to get out of death. Had to take place according to the prophecies. But he prays to the Father who listens to them, to him. And we find out at the end of verse 7 that he was heard because of his piety. His heavenly Father listened and answered his prayer. Oh, he didn't answer the first half of the prayer. Let this cup pass for me, because that was impossible. And Jesus knew it was impossible. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass. It wasn't possible. But the second half was and was answered, not as I will yet, but as you will. He gave himself to God, and God strengthened him. Sustained him upon the cross, because God always hears and answers the prayers of Jesus. And I'm so thankful we have such a great high priest, aren't you? You know, many people when they come to Christ out of Roman Catholicism inevitably have this discussion with, your fam- with their family. They say, well, if you turn your back on the church, how are you going to have access to God? You need a priest, don't you? And often the answer comes from the new Christian, oh, I don't need a priest. I can go directly to God through Jesus. And, and there's a measure of truth in that but the fact so often missed is this, we need a priest. We need a priest. And the good news is this, we have a priest. Jesus Christ who pleads for us. We have a great high priest. We have the greatest high priest. Why would we want anything else? Well, Jesus was heard, verse 7, because of His piety. speaks about His godliness. It was far better than any of the priests who walked down through the ages. He was a thoroughly righteous man, obeyed his father in all things. We see in verse 9, he became perfect. But look at verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And the verse 8 tells us that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. We know that Jesus suffered. When we think about Jesus, we think about Him upon the cross. Certainly He suffered. But we often fail to realize that Jesus learned obedience through the suffering. That's not that Jesus was disobedient before and now He's come to obey. No, that's not it. But rather, in eternity past, in heavenly bliss with the Father, there's no suffering. Therefore, little testing is obedience. But having suffered, Jesus learned obedience by obeying His heavenly Father. And He learned obedience because He experienced obedience by obeying His heavenly Father. And that, that, that took place throughout His life, not merely His death. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of Him who sent Me and to accomplish His work. Jesus said, said My food, what I eat, is to do the will of Him who sent Me. And he said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And against all his human desire, Jesus subjected himself to the will of the Father. He said, not what I will, but what you will. That's what he came for. He came to obey. Even when it meant suffering, even when it meant becoming a sacrifice himself. And that's where the priesthood of Jesus is far different than any other priest of the Old Testament. This will come out later in the book of Hebrews. But every other priest took up an animal and offered the animal upon the altar. But Jesus was different. He offered Himself up for our sins. Hebrews 7.27 
He became the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The animal sacrifices could only cover up sins. They could never take away sins, Hebrews 10.4. But Jesus can take away our sins and His sacrifice was the last sacrifice ever needed because Hebrews 10.10 says that we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Do you believe it? Believe it. The book of Hebrews comes back to again and again and again. Jesus is better. Because His humanity was better than the humanity of the high priest. His sacrifice is better. Everything about Jesus is better. The result of His suffering is, here verse 9, that He became perfect. Having been made perfect, is what verse 9 says. So what sets Jesus apart from the other high priests makes Him better. None of them could, could wear the badge of perfection. But Jesus could. Last week we saw in chapter 4, verse 15, how He was tempted in all things. We are yet without sin. Jesus was the pure, holy, spotless Lamb offered for us. And the idea isn't here that Jesus uh, was somehow flawed before His incarnation and then became perfect in the incarnation as if His flaws were removed through life here on earth. No, it's, it's more the idea here is that Jesus matured into perfection through His life. Like a plant blossoms, or a boy matures into manhood. That's what he's talking about. He's becoming complete. He's becoming whole. He's becoming perfect. Because even in heaven, he will be seen in his sacrificial state. Remember when all the, the angels around the throne, they, they look and they see a lamb standing as if slain. He'll bear the marks of perfection throughout all eternity. The marks of his death. And that's why God declares him to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, we'll hold off Melchizedek when we come to chapter 7. So as we're approaching the end of my message today, I want to focus our attention upon the end of verse 9. Really, because up till this point, there's been like no application in the text. It's been a history lesson in some sense. But I, I trust in penetrating your hearts, you see once again that Jesus is better than the high priest. And so you can run to Him. Lots of application. Really, the application is just, just, just run to Jesus. Go to Jesus. He's your high priest. He can plead for you. He can help you where I can't. But there is a point of application here in verse 9. That Jesus became to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. Now you might look at that and say, wow, this is a bit strange. Isn't salvation, Steve, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone with zero works? In fact, even Ephesians 2.8.9 says, not a result of the works so that no one of us can boast. Isn't salvation by His mercy and His mercy alone and not based on deeds of righteousness which were done, which were saved? Why do we read here in verse 9, He's become to all those who obey Him the source of eternal salvation. Here's the thing. Those who know and love His mercy will obey. If you know and love His mercy, you will obey. You don't throw away obedience because we're saved by grace. As Paul says, how shall we who died to sin, still live in it. We can't. We are compelled by an inner love to obey the Lord. Now, it's not to say we obey perfectly. It's not to mean that we obey to earn His favor. But it is the fruit of life that knows the Lord will result in a pattern of obedience. So I ask you this morning, how's your life? Are you obeying Jesus? 
Are you seeking to conform your life to His? Do you count Him as your highest treasure? And, and what, what drips off of His lips is something that you want to hear? And not some imaginary Jesus, but the Jesus of the Bible, how He's re- revealed Himself. When Jesus says something, do you obey? Does your heart say, yes, Lord, I, I believe, I obey, that's where I want to go? Or you shun Him because it's to those who obey Him who He gives eternal salvation. Obedience, the key is here, it's a sign of your faith. Your obedience doesn't save you, but your obedience shows your faith. Now, there are those, there are those who say, and I can't understand how they say, yeah, all you do is believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter how you live. Well, in some sense that's true, because you're saved by your faith, but, but the way you live demonstrates the authenticity of your faith. That Jesus said, you know people by their fruits. Look at the fruit of their life and you see what kind of tree they are. At this point also, I do need to say this, is that we can easily miss the exposition of the book of Hebrews how these words would have been received to the original hearers. That Jesus was better than a high priest was, was a big deal for them. For generations, the people of Israel looked upon the work of the high priest as their biggest hope before the Lord. They knew the Day of Atonement, that, that, that the whole nation would gather around. And they would hear and see, and those who had a seat could see and watch the priest enter into the holy place and see it come out and hear the results. Did he live? Were our sins before the Lord, are they atoned for? All their hopes pinned upon this man, and now the message comes that Jesus is better than the high priest. The high priests are no longer needed. Is that really the case, they would have said? Really? And it was a battle for them. They're thinking about, but the high priest, because at the time the writing of the Hebrews was written, High priests were still offering up sacrifices in the Jewish system. There were still Jewish high priests. And they could go and they could watch that take place again in a time of transition before the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. And they said, oh, is it Jesus or, or the high priest? Which, what am I going to trust for the forgiveness of my sins? And, and here's the thing. None of us came here this morning thinking, Jesus or, or high priest, should I? Should I go to the high priest or should I go to Jesus? All right? Which, did anyone come in like this this morning? I don't think any of us did. Because the high priest just isn't even our category. It's not even on our radar screen. We've not even seen a high priest. But here's the application. Though we may not struggle with Jesus and the high priest and what's, what's better, what we should go to, there, there are plenty of other things here in this hand that might pull us one way or the other. It might be Jesus or my, my friends. You know, where, where am I really going to put my trust for my happiness? Am I going to try to find my happiness in my friends or am I going to try to find my happiness and joy and content in Jesus? Or Jesus and my money. My money, I can buy what I need over here. Or Jesus and my reputation. That's what's most important to me. Or Jesus in my pleasure. Yeah, that's, what's, that's what I love. Or Jesus my technology or my house or my cars. And the list goes on and on and on and on. We may not battle between Jesus and high priest, but we may battle in our hearts with Jesus and something else today. And that's the question before us this morning is this. Is Jesus your all in all? Are there any rivals to Jesus? Because Jesus tops the greatest of religious figures in all of history, the high priest. See, the Christian life is all about renouncing everything. 
Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yet even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Even your own life. Is there anything more precious to you than those things? Paul said it this way in Philippians 3. He says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom, Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count all things as rubbish. Dung. Dog poop, if you will. I count all things to be dog poop in light of what I have in Christ. And that I might be found in Him, in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. See, when you look at it from every angle, any perspective, Jesus is always better. And that's what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 3. Everything else is like the garbage heap. Jesus is better. And this morning, He's better than the high priest. He's the one who can sympathize in great humanity. He's the one who's been called and appointed by God. And I just say, church family, let's run to Him, find our joy and contentment in Him and in nothing else. Okay, let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, in the quietness of this moment, I pray that we might look at our lives, might see where we have valued other things more than Christ, and might turn from those things into Jesus once again. I pray, O oh Lord, that You would, would help us in these days. Help us to, to see how great Jesus is and might press on towards Him. We might not, not fall away. We might not drop out. We might not stop running. We might not quit. But may the attraction of Jesus pull us and attract us so much that He is our heart's desire. So Lord, I pray You'd help. For the wandering soul here this morning who's debating, I, just, I pray the weight of these weeks would come upon the souls that Jesus is better than anything we have. God, may You persuade the heart. May You grant repentance. May You open eyes to see. Help us to see Jesus clearly as even we saw in First Peter, we have not seen Him, but we love Him. And we do not see Him now, but we do believe in Him. May we rejoice greatly with a joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining us the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. That's what we rejoice in, God, the salvation that You have provided because You've given us of Yourself. And may that be what attracts our hearts to love and serve You all of our days. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.